todo el mundo. What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the film The Ventures Stars on Guitars. You are listening to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast for people who love music from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And now, on to the show. Today, the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast welcomes film director and producer Mike Schiff. Mike's extensive documentary, The History of Metal and Horror, was released last year and is now streaming. He also worked for The Howard Stern Show and created music videos for John Carpenter, Fozzie, and Charred Walls of the Damned. Let's get him on the phone to talk metal and horror. Hi, Mike. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. appreciate it. Uh, the History of Metal and Horror was released last year, so I'm wondering how long it was in the making and what was the impetus to make it in the first place? So back in 2014, uh, I attended Kirk Hammett's Fear Fest Evil Convention in California. Uh, my friend Rob Lucas is uh, friendly with Kirk, and he brought me on to um, you know, do some photography, some video work, and also just kind of be an extra hand to uh, to help set some stuff up. So uh, so I attended the first weekend in 2014, and after the weekend, I was thinking that there hadn't yet been a documentary made on the connection between heavy metal and horror. You know, it's one of those things that uh, we all know that, there, that there's been a connection there for a long time, but no one had yet put a documentary together. So That's amazing. Yeah, so I figured it might be a good idea to, to do that. And between the people in the business that uh, both Rob and I knew, uh, it wouldn't be too challenging to start getting a couple of, um, you know, a couple of uh, people in the metal world and the horror world uh, interviewed to uh, to get that going. So, uh, so yeah, so the process started in 2014, and then uh, the whole thing was about six and a half years to put together. So it was a long, long stretch of time. It is really extensive, though. You have so many interviewees, um, really a stunning array. Um, how did you assemble such an impressive cast? Although you had the time, it's not always easy to get that many folks together. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, I mean, we, we started putting together a list of mostly metal musicians who have been a horror, influenced by horror. Uh, so, you know, people like that would include, of course, Kirk Hammett and uh, Corey Taylor and Rob Zombie, Alice Cooper. So we put a pretty big list together. And I think we got most of the 
the celebrities that we wanted. Uh, There's still a few more that were you know, that didn't work out, whether it was just uh, management or time issues or whatever it was. But we got pretty much uh, most of the people that we wanted. Um, and so, yeah, we, st- we started with Chris Jericho because I knew Chris from a couple of years back. I had uh, shot and edited, uh, co-directed uh, one of Fozzie's music videos. So I reached out to him first and, and he was, of course, on board. So when him and uh, Fozzie were in New York, which is where I live, we were able to set up an interview uh, prior to the show. So that was the first one. And then after that, it was just a matter of sort of reaching out to people that we knew. Uh, a lot of it was also going to horror conventions because a lot of the horror celebrities, um, sorry, a lot of the horror celebrities uh, were at the convention. So I was able to m- maybe get three or four or even more uh, celebrities over one weekend. So a lot of the interviews were, sh- were shot that way. And some of those were, just the people we knew they were already familiar and friendly with us. And some of them were meeting for the first time, but after we told them what the project was about, they were, they were on board with it. So a lot of it was that. And a lot of it was also just reaching out to uh, band management and uh, sending in a request for an interview and things like that. So it was uh, kind of a combination of, uh, of different things there. Well, it does look very cohesive though. Your lighting and your sets are, you know, it doesn't look like a mishmash or too many things taken at conventions, aside from I think the guar part is a little different from the others. But how did you manage to make it look so, um, it looks like it was done in a in a finite amount of time. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the uh, a lot of the interviews that we shot at conventions were shot in hotel rooms. Mm-hmm. So so I'd book a room and then we'd just set it up with uh, lights in the camera. And of course, some of those rooms uh, get pretty tight. So, um, so we, you know, they'd walk into the room and it's just jam packed with, uh, with equipment that they'd have to kind of sneak under the boom mic and around the lights (laughs) and, and stuff like that. So, uh, so, so there was a lot of that. And I I think a lot of these celebrities have also experienced a lot of that throughout their careers of, um, just grabbing those types of interviews, either that, or they get interviewed on the floor of the convention, which is of course not ideal because you have no control over the situation. So, I wanted everything to be very consistent, which is why I did my best to try to get everything shot in a quiet, controlled environment. So there was a lot of hotel rooms, but then there was also, you know, going out to Alice Cooper's restaurant, uh, Cooperstown, where he had a whole downstairs area set up for interviews or going out to um, Dave Mustaine's house, you know, and and interviewing him in one of his uh, gigantic rooms at his house. Uh, and then, uh, you know, sometimes we'd uh, have a studio that were rented out and we do it there. So I wanted to try to keep the sort of the overall look as consistent as we could. And like you mentioned, Guar was, uh, and Sepultura, I think a few of those, uh, I didn't really have any options because they were shot at music festivals. So, you know, I, I get them as you know, however I can get them. So if I have to shoot them outdoors, uh, and, and mix things up a little bit, change up the, uh, the routine and the look, then. I did what I had to do, but for the most part, everything kind of looks uh, about the same. It does. Yeah, you did a great job on that. And the documentary also contains sort of a mini movie um, starring mm-hmm. Michael Berryman, a uh, horror icon. Um, it's kind of scripted bookends. So was this always the plan or was it added? What's the thought process behind that kind of unusual aspect to the documentary? Uh, so right from the start, I knew I wanted to do something different because every, for the most part, most documentaries have the same formula. It's mm-hmm. a lot of talking head. It's a lot of B-roll. And and maybe there's a host that just kind of speaks directly to the audience and 
sets up what's happening, what's it about, and kind of uh, sets up each chapter. But I wanted to make more of a film out of it uh, because ultimately, I you know I want to do more narrative type stuff. So this also gave me an excuse to do a, uh, a short film, which is, runs about thirteen minutes. Uh, so right from the start, I didn't know what the storyline would be exactly, but I knew I wanted it to be uh, a narrative film, uh, fictional piece. So so I started brainstorming a couple of ideas, and I think not too many different ideas. I think I landed on this storyline probably on the second second round uh, after I gave up on the first one, and I was just kind of thinking like who would be a good you know host for this, and uh, bouncing our ideas around with friends and uh, my friend Evan McGar. He uh, he suggested Michael Berriman based on sort of my description. And I said, absolutely. Michael sounds like the perfect fit for this thing. Uh, so he said, you know, reach out to uh, a mutual friend, um, James Balsamo and James knew Michael and, and his management. So uh, he gave me their info and I reached out to management and we just kind of worked it out. So uh, Michael flew down to uh, my friend Rob's studio down in Burbank and we shot all his stuff on green screen. This was after I, I had already shot everything else on, on a location in New York for the short film. Uh, mm-hmm. and knew what I needed for um, for Michael's parts based on that. And we were able to sort of choreograph uh, all of his stuff uh, to fit in with the with the footage already shot. So that's how that how all that came about. Uh, you have a couple of very music savvy producers on the film. Can you talk a little bit about them? Uh, like Brian Slagle? Everybody yeah, yeah. knows him. Who's anybody in metal, right? Sure, sure. Yeah, I've known I've known Brian for a bunch of years. Uh, we have a mutual friend, Richard Christie. Richard, I knew from working at the Howard Stern Show for a bunch of years, uh, and so Richard's band, Charles Wells of the Damned, is signed to Metal Blade. So that's how I kind of got to uh, to meet Brian because I, I shot, um, I directed, and shot, edited uh, two of the Charles Wells videos. So I got to meet uh, Brian that way, uh, working on that kind of stuff. So I kept in touch with him and, of course, reached out when I was uh, starting the documentary. And uh, you know, because him and I knew each other, we were friendly. It was it was an easy interview to, get to put together. But, yeah, Brian is one of those guys who's very knowledgeable. Of course, he's been in the business forever. So if anyone knows anything about metal, it's him. But he's also a huge horror fan. So he was able to add a lot of horror talk to the conversation, which is great. So he, he was actually uh, a perfect guy for this project because he... He understands and, and loves both metal and horror, which was great. And so do you. I mean, what came first for you as a fan? Was it metal or horror? Definitely horror. Uh, horror started for me when I was really young because my dad was a huge horror fan. And he grew up in the early stuff with the the universal horror films. He loved Dracula, Frankenstein, The Mummy, and, and all of that. Then, of course, got into the Hammer films. He was a huge fan of that. And uh, so there was always horror around. We didn't, you know, this was, I mean, we're talking about back in 70s, early 80s, we didn't even have like a VHS player or anything. So we'd catch whatever was on TV. Mm-hmm. And, and on certain days, you know, Sundays, uh, there would be various horror movies on. So a lot of the uh, the old stuff, you know, the things that were fairly safe for TV would, would play on TV. Um, so I'd catch a lot of stuff there. And also some of the stuff that was edited for TV originally when I saw uh you know, like The Exorcist and things like that. I didn't see all the really gruesome stuff until until later. But I remember as as, as a kid seeing stuff like Salem's Lot and uh, and other stuff on on TV that definitely stuck with me. Oh um, yeah, that's a scary one. Yeah, it was creepy. I mean, especially as a kid, you know, it, it was really uh really really effective and and um stayed with me. 
But as far as metal goes, I really didn't get into metal until maybe the mid nineties. I was a really late bloomer. As far as that genre goes, I was not much of a music fan in, you know, when I was growing up uh, in the eighties, it was for me, it was mostly hard film soundtracks and I'd buy scores and soundtracks. So when I really started getting into getting, being exposed to different types of music and bands and, and stuff probably started with the Lost Boys soundtrack. I think that was mm. the first album that I ever bought. And uh, and that was the type of thing where you had to kind of, it was had a local small record store near me and they were out of stock of stuff all the time. So I had to wait. So it took a couple of weeks, I think, to get that album, whereas these days you can just get it instantly. Uh, so I was collecting soundtracks. And of course, like the Elm Street soundtrack started having a lot of uh, rock bands performing on them, docking, of course, on Elm Street 3. So I was, I was, kind of getting into music a little bit then um but my cousin peter who uh who i also dedicated the film with film to um he was a huge metal fan back in back in the 80s and he had all of the metallica tapes and uh anthrax and megadeth and all that i didn't really get it he was always trying to introduce me to it but it never really caught on until you know in the 90s uh you know i started he also introduced me to grunge and i think grunge was sort of the first genre in that area that I started getting into. And then I was like, Oh, I like this, you know, let's get a little heavier. And so once I started getting heavier, then I started kind of going backwards and saying, Oh, now I get it. Now I get Metallica and, and Megadeth mm-hmm. and what these bands are all about. And kind of got into the newer stuff, got into Slipknot and Lamb of God and these other uh, more modern bands. So it was a long, uh, long journey as far as the music goes, but the horror started very early. Um, what was one of the biggest surprises or something maybe previously unknown to you that you learned while making the history of metal and horror? Um, not a lot of surprises, but I think one thing that some people might find interesting is that uh, while all of the metal artists were horror fans, not all the horror artists were metal fans. Mm. So so you take uh, you know someone like Tom Savini, uh, who's not into metal at all. He's just not into the genre. He, he's into more of the, you know, maybe uh, 60s, 70s rock bands and stuff like that at most. But he's not into any of this modern metal at all. Um, but then you have someone like John Carpenter who loves Metallica, you know, and he, he loves some of the, the heavier stuff. So uh, Bill Mosley also, he likes some metal. So, the, you know, some of the, some of the guys were really, um, really into it and others just want nothing to do with it. So... So that was kind of interesting. That's that's where it, it would, the conversation wasn't as uh, as robust as far as talking about metal goes, because a lot of them didn't really know much about metal or metal artists. So they weren't able to uh, to really get into it. Yeah. Bill uh, Mosley, I think, is one of the few actors that was actually in a heavy band. I know he played with Buckethead and uh, sometimes guested uh, with Ogre. Yep. Yep, and he uh, he also worked with um, Phil and Selmo, so they had the the Phil and Bill. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. That they put together, so uh-huh. so yeah, so they'll do stuff like that, and even like Doug Bradley, he's also not a metal fan, but he'll do stuff. He'll you know put lend his voice to Cradle of Phil's albums. So he he did I think four of their albums, um, just contributing his voice, and they made it sound like Pinhead's voice. So so he got to sort of play Pinhead on on four Cradle of Filth albums. But uh, but yeah, he's he's also one that's just not a fan of of the actual music. Huh. Yeah, it's kind of a throwback, I guess, to getting Vincent Price's voice on Michael Jackson song or something like that. Sure. Yeah. 
Um, well, I do love that you got Arthur Brown on camera. Um, you know, a lot of people wouldn't have thought about him in connection with metal, but he is a forerunner to shock rock. So how did that mm -hmm. come about? And who are the other elder statesmen in your documentary? Yeah, I think I think uh, Arthur Brown came up when I was talking to Brian Slagle, actually. Um, I was kind of picking his brain. I said, yeah, Brian, who else? Who else are we missing? And um, he said, well, you know, you should go back a little bit and look at Arthur Brown and Screaming Lord Such, uh, some of those guys, because even though they weren't metal musicians or even hard rock musicians, they started bringing theatrics into their stage shows and to, into their look. They were putting on creepy makeup and their videos were, uh, you know, Screaming Lord Such had uh, had sort of a Jack the Ripper themed music video. So those guys started doing that. And uh, Screaming Jay Hawkins, of course, with I Put a Spell on You, like he, he was also always into skulls and skeletons and, and mm -hmm. creepy stuff so uh so again not metal musicians but i think a lot of metal musicians were inspired by the creepy stuff that they were doing because um you know without them perhaps they might have just looked like themselves and and not put on any real theatrical um uh pre you know presentations and performances so they might have been a little boring <laughs> in that sense visually <laughs> But uh, but yeah, th those guys uh, definitely started a whole new new thing as far as makeup and theatrics on stage, which, I, yeah, of course, I think, um, you know, Alice Cooper, you know, saw, saw some of that stuff and incorporated and, and of course, him and Arthur Brown are good friends and performed together. Um, so, um, yeah, I think uh, I think that's kind of how it started. And then I was able to find Arthur Brown, I think, on maybe his social media or or something, but then I got his He's email on social address. media? He, yeah, I think he kind of floats <laughs> around a little bit. He has wow. a Facebook account. Um, you know, I don't know if he manages it himself, but uh, but he's around there. So I was able to reach out to him and I emailed him and I said, hey, you know, I'm interested in uh, doing an interview. I th and I think I had seen that he was performing in Vegas uh, at one point and I was going to be in California around the same time. So I said, hey, I'm going to be out on the West Coast uh, if you have some time to chat. Uh, you know, sometime around that, that time when you're performing, I'd love to sit down with you. So he wrote back right away. He said, absolutely, sounds good. And that's how I was able to set up the Arthur Brown interview. And he was uh, he was fantastic. He was a great guy to talk to, very knowledgeable. And uh, and he was, he was uh, I was very fortunate to get someone who's that old school uh, going back, you know, way into the into the 60s. So he's um, yeah, he was he was a good get. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, the documentary really has a lot of um, historical wisdom in it, thanks to people like that and all of your interviewees. Um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was um, horror movies that incorporate heavy metal into the plot, which was really a popular thing to do in the 80s and 90s. Um, do you have any recommendations of your favorites and um, any great bands that have horror themed stage shows to see live? Who are some of your favorites? Uh, yeah. I mean, some movies, of course you have to see trick or treat. I think that's mm -hmm. sort of uh, yeah, essential if you're going to, you know, get into sort of metal themed horror films. Um, and that stars Mark Price, who's also in the documentary who I interviewed about trick or treat. So he's able to, to set up that whole, uh, part of the chapter which i think was very important because that that movie really incorporated a lot of what was going on in the 80s as far as you know the censorship and, and sort of um and kids who are 
into metal and horror who can't seem to fit in with everyone else at school. I think a lot of us can sort of relate to that. And Mark Price touches on that uh, quite a bit. So Trick or Treat for sure. Other movies like Black Roses is a good, uh, you know, metal themed horror film. And um, now if you want to get into the little bit more uh, uh, cheesy kind of stuff, but also entertaining, there's stuff like Rock and Roll Nightmare, which, uh, yeah. which, which I would recommend everyone uh-huh. uh, everyone check out. It's, it's a fun movie, you know, no matter what. Um, but yes, and then as far as performers who are doing scary stuff on stage, I mean, Guar, of course, is, is a very, uh, you know, Wild, you know, wild band. If you're going to be in the first few rows, before be, be sure to wear your raincoat and exactly <laughs> and boots because you are going to get soaked. Uh, they're great, and of course, uh, King Diamond puts on a great you know horror show. Uh, same thing with Alice Cooper, who's still out there doing you know a million shows a year. You got you got to catch him if you haven't seen him yet. And Rob Zombie, of course, puts on huge horror themed shows. So those those are definitely. Um, some of the essentials. I mean, there are plenty of other bands who are doing horror themed stuff on stage, but, uh, but those, those are some of the big ones that I would definitely. Yeah. Those are very accessible bands. Um, So the history of metal and horror, I I believe that marks your directorial debut. Yeah, I I think so. As far as a feature length project, it it definitely would be. Uh, I've done short stuff before. Yeah. I've worked at, uh, the Howard Stern show, I was doing a lot of, I worked for the TV department, so I was doing a lot of original programming over there. Uh, and uh, a lot of short, uh, I was doing music videos and, and a couple of other projects, but this was actually the first feature length project of any of any kind. Eventually, I'd like to do feature length uh, narrative films, uh, but I might do some more documentaries for, for all I know. I'm kind of still going through the process with this film. Uh, just getting it released and getting it out there. So I'll, I'll concentrate on this for a bit. And then once the dust settles, then I'll, I'll consider doing something else. But definitely more more feature length work is what I'd like to do. Yeah, it's a, a massive undertaking. And it's great um, that people can see it now. I know it's streaming. Um, that's I know it's on a few different platforms. Now, where can people who want to find more about the movie and find out more about you online, where can they go? Uh, so the first stop would be metalhorror.com. That's uh, that's where you get all the information on the film, who's in it, where it can be seen, all the streaming services. And I'm also selling uh, DVDs and Blu-rays directly from the store as well as posters. Uh, and through there, I can also sign copies and I can make special editions and things like that. So that would be a good first stop. And then if anyone wants to follow on social media, uh, the handle on all the platforms is at the Metal Horror. So they can keep up with uh, any updates and and uh, other postings that I might throw up on there from time to time. Excellent. Well, thank you, Mike. I really appreciate you being on the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. Thank you so much. It's been a blast and uh, it's great talking to you. Yeah. Everybody go check out the movie. Now I'm going to read an excerpt from Rock and Roll Nightmares True Stories, Volume 2. The audiobook read by Andy Garrison will be out via Audible very soon. This is from the chapter Psycho Killer. It's about the murder of Brian Harvey, who played guitar and sang with a band called House of Freaks formed in Richmond, Virginia. Brian Harvey performed on New Year's Eve 2005 with his band, then went home to his wife Catherine and their two young daughters Stella and Ruby. 
they were to host a New Year's Day party, and of course, Johnny Hot was invited. Johnny pulled up at about 4 p.m. and parked in front of his former bandmate's unassuming two-story house. Christmas trees could be seen through windows and colored lights still decorated the houses. Oddly, none of the neighbors seemed to have noticed that the Harvey home was on fire. The shocked percussionist called 911 and fast-moving, siren-blaring fire trucks were soon squealing to a stop at the scene. First responders dashed inside and found the source of the blaze, the basement. Inside the smoke-filled room were four prone bodies. Immediately, firefighters rushed the victims outside and into the fresh air in hopes of reviving them. But in the late afternoon sun, they saw that all four had been bound, gagged, and murdered. Their bodies were so viciously wounded that cops and firemen reportedly cried at the scene. A knife from the family's own kitchen was used to stab them and slash their throats while a claw hammer taken from Brian's toolbox did the rest. And the story continues in the book for several pages. That's just a short excerpt. And as I mentioned, the audiobook read by Andy Garrison will be out via Audible very soon. This concludes another episode of Rock and Roll Nightmares. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson. The theme song, Out for Blood, is composed and sung by Lars with a Z, Cabot, and the band is Fuzzbuster. This is an indie podcast, so your subscriptions and ratings are really important. Thank you for joining me, and until next time... <laughs>